This morning we're going to be going back to Revelation. We took a pause back in the middle of December from our study in Revelation, and we're going to finally get back there. So if you want to go to Revelation chapter 17, Revelation chapter 17 is where we left off. We're going to read the entire chapter, although I don't think we're going to get through the entire chapter today, but I want to put it all in context. And I have to apologize from the outset. I don't have all the strength that I should yet, so I'm going to have to keep it under three hours. So bear with me. We'll get as far as we can today with the Lord's help. As we get to chapter 17 in Revelation, let me just give you a a catch-up or a review, if we will. So we know where we're starting, okay? In chapter 16, what we saw there as we ended that chapter a little over a month ago was the last of the seven bold judgments being poured out on the earth. And I'm just going to read the end of chapter 16 before we jump into 17. Starting verse 18, it says, There were voices and thunders and lightnings. There was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, that's Jerusalem. And the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. That's verse 19, and it talks about great Babylon receiving the wrath of God, and that's what we're going to see in chapter 17 and 18, okay? Verse 20 says, every island fled away, the mountains were not found. That's the great change that will come upon the earth just before the millennial kingdom. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail for the plague thereof was exceeding great. And that's where we left off in chapter 16. So we have the last of God's judgments just before Jesus Christ himself comes back to earth to destroy his enemies and set up his earthly kingdom. But we see men still blaspheming God. Now, many millions have been killed by this point. And God has harvested many off the earth for judgment. And so what we're left with is that remnant, not God's remnant, but the remnant of the evil ones, those who are following Satan, the armies of the earth specifically that will engage in the battle of Armageddon. Here we'll see that in chapter uh, at the end, uh, beginning of chapter 19. But as we get into 17 and 18, we're taking a step back. The angel comes to John and he basically says, okay, you've seen all the judgments. Now I want to take you back and we're going to focus on this Babylon, the great city, although it's more than just the city of Babylon. But I want you to see the judgment of God and what he's judging in this Babylon. And so in 17, we see for a, we see the one world religious system that will exist during the end of time. And then in chapter 18, it comes down to the one world economic system that centers in this great city of Babylon and how God destroys that. So it's the whole system, both religiously and economically, that God is judging that comes out of and really originates in Babylon. But both of them are taken down, but they are taken down in different manners. And that's why God gives us this glimpse in chapter 17 and 18. So in chapter 17, what we're going to see is the description of the one world false religion that will dominate the world at the time of the Antichrist. And we're taking um, a parenthesis, if you will. We're going back to the beginning of the tribulation here to see this religion and how it's described by God here. And remember, after the rapture, this all happens after the rapture. After the rapture, people are going to be seeking answers. Economics and politics is not going to be able to answer what has just happened and the turmoil that comes upon the earth. And so people will turn to religion. As many people say that they are not religious, what is what most people do first in the time of catastrophe? They pray. They call out to God to help them. Even people who say they don't believe in God end up in that position. And so this is the turn to religion 
And the, the end times, the world will be very religious. We've seen that. But here, what we're going to read in the beginning of chapter 17, it describes that religious system for us. So let's look at chapter 17. We're going to read the whole chapter. We'll probably only get through the first part of it this morning. Verse 1 starts, it says, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb and the lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over kings of the earth. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we will look at our message this morning. Father, we just come to you now as weak people, and yet you've told us that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. So, Lord, be strong in us today. I pray that you would teach us. Help us to be strong in understanding through the teaching of your Spirit. Help us to submit to his work in our lives. And Lord, give us understanding about what we're reading today so that we can learn from it. We can glean these important lessons that you have given us in this passage. Lord, help us to understand true religion and false religion as you've described here. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do your work accomplish your purpose. Give me strength now in body, of mind, in word. I pray that you would give me wisdom so that I might speak your truth. Lord, fill me with your spirit so your work is accomplished now through your power, and we'll praise you for what you're going to do, and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In chapter 17, what we have is a description and the end of the false religion of the end times. Now, what we see in chapter 17 is what happens in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. This is the condition of mankind on the earth at this point religiously. And the first part of chapter 17 describes what that religion will be like. Now, you probably have heard, and we've talked about in the past, this one world religion that will really dominate the earth at that, at the beginning of the tribulation. And that's exactly what we see here. And it comes out of what we see as the city of Babylon or the system 
of Babylon. So to understand this a little bit more clearly, let me describe and go back a little bit in history, because Babylon really is the birthplace of false religion, if we want to look at it that way. And that's why Babylon is addressed both here and in chapter 18, the system that came out of the the civilization of Babylon. But understanding the history of Babylon will give us an insight into what God is telling us here in chapter 17. All of you are probably at least familiar with Karl Marx. I hope you don't follow him, okay? But Karl Marx was the socialist German philosopher. He was the author of the Communist Manifesto, and he had a famous quote about religion. He said, religion is the opium of the people. Basically, it is the comfort that they find as they get addicted to what really isn't substance, but somehow it gives them peace. And so we hold on to this invisible comfort, if you will, invisible pacifier in our lives that we call religion. That was his opinion. And he says, so they use that to fill the gaps of what they don't understand, and then they just hold on to it. And this is the foundation of where lots of people use this statement of religion is just a crutch that people use, okay? It comes from Karl Marx. That's his thinking. But he believed that if religion was removed, that men would have nothing to fall back on as that crutch, and therefore men then would rise up to address and fight against all of the inequalities in our world, all of the wrong that's being done, and I put that in quotes, the wrong, as far as social justice is concerned. But without religion, we would see the reality around us and then rise up to fight against it. That was his theory. And his utopia existed in a world void of any God except ourselves because we have to look out for ourselves. And if we would start looking out for ourselves instead of relying on religion as our crutch, the world would be a better place. Okay, That's the basis of socialism, um, and we know that. But while the words that he communicated... Um, spoke about equality and common good. Ultimately, this is the same lie that Satan used to deceive Eve back in the Garden of Eden. Basically, what Satan said to Eve was this, why should you be denied all the best things? Why should God have everything and you not? And so it was an appeal to self, to pride and selfishness, fulfilling the flesh. And that foundational statement that Satan made back in the Garden of Eden, and as he questioned, did God really say this? Shouldn't we question what God says? Shouldn't we reevaluate things and put it in our own perspective so we get gain out of it? That was Satan's question to, to Eve. And that has become the basis and foundation of all false religions since that point. So when that attitude is existent in any religion, and it doesn't matter what name you put on it, but the attitude of false religion is seeking out for self, because that's what caused Satan to fall. So even in Marx, we find the foundation of false religion, even while he said his goals was to get rid of religion, it was still a religion, and that is the basis of this false religion. MacArthur says this, false religion's powerful appeal comes from its promise to satisfy man's longing for the spiritual realm without bringing him under God's authority. And that's what most people want. Without God, they can have what they want. They can have their own life. They can find satisfaction. And if religion needs to be a part of their life, they can create or just join some religion apart from God. Now, they may claim God, but it's not the God of Scripture. It's not the God who is God over the earth. It's this God of their own making in their mind. And so many false religions have sought to replace God with false gods of their own and to avoid accountability. That is the basis of false religion, not submitting to the real true God, the God of heaven, creating a false God in our own minds and then not being accountable to the true God. We see a long history of that in scriptures going all the way back to Noah's day. And I want to say this, that every world power since the time of Noah has had a false religion at its base. The foundation of every world power started with a false religion. 
And of course, that's what drove them to world dominance, to conquer other people, to control other people. It wasn't the right motivation of seeking God. It was the wrong motivation of exalting self. If we go all the way back to Genesis, we see a man named Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10. Nimrod was Noah's great-grandson. And you'd think, well, you know, only a few generations removed from Noah, people couldn't really get that bad. But Nimrod was that bad. Okay, Nimrod was in it for himself. And in chapter 10, verse 8 through 12 of Genesis, the Bible tells us about Nimrod. It says in Cush, that was Noah's grandson, Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. That means very influential and strong. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And there's a debate about how to interpret that. Does it mean that he was a mighty hunter of animals or that he was a mighty hunter seeking for his own good? But that's really what defined him. But the Bible says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Verse 10 in chapter 10 says, In the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Now, we know that city. That's where the tower was built. In fact, Nimrod was the instigator and director of the Tower of Babel. But it goes on. It says, The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Now, the land of Shinar is what we know as modern-day Iraq. And in the Bible times, it was called Babylon. If you go back to the time of Abraham, it was called the Chaldees. But here it's called Shinar. It it is the birthplace of civilization, and it is the center of where evil started. Many scholars and theologians believe that it was in this area where the Garden of Eden existed, and that's where sin first started. But it's in the land of Shinar. And then it says, out of that land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh. Now, we're familiar with Nineveh if you know the story of Jonah, remember That's the city, the great Assyrian sinful city that Jonah was supposed to go preach to. Well over 100,000 people there. It was the capital of the wicked Assyrian empire. And it was spawned out of Nimrod's influence and control. Okay, so we see a little bit about Nimrod's history here and what came out of him. And so Nimrod was the brains and the brawn behind the Tower of Babel, and Babel is that city that eventually became Babylon. It's just the the Old Testament, older version of Babylon. So Babel and Babylon are the same place, okay? And this, we know, is where King Nebuchadnezzar reigned and from where he went and conquered Israel or uh, Judah and the southern kingdoms and took over the world for all practical purposes. It's also the city which he proclaimed that he would be worshipped from. But Nimrod's goal in building the Tower of Babel, which we read about in Genesis 11, was to unite the entire earth, all of the civilization of earth, under one language. They had that at that point. And under one government and under one false religion, man seeking to exalt himself. And that's why they built the tower. In chapter 11, I'm not going to read it for time's sake, but it says they built the tower so they could have this monument up to heaven that reached up to heaven so they could exalt themselves in in their accomplishments. That's false religion at its base. And so it all started right here at Babylon on the Euphrates River. And in Revelation 17, we will see that it will end here at Babylon with that same system. And when God confused the languages at the Tower of Babel as they attempted to erect a monument to themselves, they scattered all over the world. And they took that false religion with them. And that false religion now shows up in different cultures in different ways, but it has the same root. And it all came out of this system of Babylon or the Tower of Babel, Nimrod's legacy. Now, the first documented false religion starts with Nimrod's wife, Semiramis. Semiramis had a son, Tammuz. If you know anything about ancient history, you'll recognize both of those names. Maybe Tammuz more than Semiramis. But Semiramis, Nimrod's wife, claimed that her firstborn son, Tammuz, was born apart from male interaction with her. So he was a virgin-born son. Satan's first attempt at hijacking the virgin birth that God promised in Genesis chapter 3. But Samiris, Samiramis said that Tammuz was born 
from a virgin birth. During his lifetime, he was killed by a wild boar and then was raised back to life. See the picture that Satan's trying to draw for us way back in Genesis. And so Satan is counterfeiting God's plan to bring a redeemer. And she, Semiramis, proclaimed that Tammuz, and literally quoting Genesis chapter 3, God's word said that Tammuz was this redeemer that God would raise up. And so all the world began to worship Tammuz and Semiramis. Now, this duo, Semiramis and Tammuz, have been adopted throughout history by many cultures and many religions. In fact, even Israel was guilty of crying for Tammuz and baking loaves for the Queen of Heaven, which was a version of Semiramis. And Semiramis went under a host of different names throughout history. This goddess, virgin goddess, as she presented herself, She was known as Semiramis, obviously, originally, but her other names that she took on or that people gave to her include Astarte, Ishtar, Diana, Aphrodite, and Venus. And in fact, if you want to dig, even the Virgin Mary, according to the Catholic Church, mirrors Semiramis. Anytime you have this Virgin mother son combination that are worshiped equally, you have this false religion started at the Tower of Babel. And so it exists today. It has existed throughout all of history. It is the foundational uh, tenet of any false religion. But basically, it is if you worship this God in this way, then you will get what you want. That's false religion all through history. And so people accepted all of these versions of this original false religion all through history so that they could get what they want. It's all about benefiting me. And so Satan's ploy to dissuade and distract mankind away from God's plan with his own false version of a redeemer has been alive and well since basically the beginning of civilization right after Noah. And it has existed and will exist all the way up until the end times. And in the end times, during the tribulation, it will be the one world religion that unites all people of the earth. Okay? While Satan has been unsuccessful up to that point in uniting the world under one false religion, he will be successful in the end times. With the exception of those true believers who are saved after the rapture. Now, I believe the church and Israel, specifically in the early days of the earth, but the church specifically now is the element that exists now that keeps the world from uniting under one false religion. It is the detriment to Satan, and that's why he wants to get rid of us. That's why his goal is to destroy us, because he wants to shut down the truth and those people who live by the truth. When that's gone, after the rapture, there's nothing that will stand in the way of uniting people of the earth under this false religion. And that's what we read about here in chapter 17. So I want to look at the nature of false religion as it's described to us. We're just going to probably get through the first six verses today. That was all my introduction. So you see, I'm not going to get very far, okay? But verse 1, okay, let's go to verse 1. It says, And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Remember, this is John. He's relating to us this vision and the things that are given to him uh, during these visions. And here he says an angel, one of the angels that has just poured out the judgments that we read about in chapter 16. And he says, that angel came to me and he said, I want you to understand this judgment specifically against this city of Babylon or this system of Babylon. And chapter 17 is the religious aspect of that. And so he describes for John the religious aspect of Babylon or a false religion as it originated way back in Genesis and it has as it has existed throughout history and how it will appear or function during the tribulation period. So John is taken back in his scope of understanding here to the beginning of the tribulation to understand what we're starting with, okay? And so here is the character of false religion that will exist. It does exist, 
but it will exist in uniting the earth at that time. So in verse 1, the angel describes this as the great whore or the harlot that sitteth upon many waters. So here we have the first characteristic of false religion is that it's very popular with people. Now we know that millions of people in our earth today flock to false religions because for them it satisfies something within them as far as a religious need, but it doesn't hold them accountable to God. They don't need the truth of God, but they have religion. So false religion is very popular with people. That's one of the characteristics, and that's what the angel basically tells John. He says, I will show thee a great judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. That phrase, sitteth upon many waters, is actually defined for us. We don't have to speculate, because if you go down to verse 15, look at what the angel said. And he said unto me, that waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. That's the entire world. Now, all through Revelation, we've read in God's judgment this phrase that describes those that dwell on the earth. It's talking about unbelievers, those that have rebelled against God. And that's who's described here. All the people who are alive on the earth at the beginning of the tribulation period will succumb to this false religion. They will bow to it. Now, this is not worship of the Antichrist at this point. Okay, that doesn't happen for three and a half years. What unites people is a religion on my own terms. Okay, now you've heard this. If you have listened to anything religiously or even in our culture, all different aspects of religion around the world are trying to find this uniting factor. Okay, I received just a pamphlet in the last couple of weeks from, and I can't remember, the Christians United of Beaver County or something like that. But it includes Catholics. They've invited Mormons. It's whoever calls themselves Christian. And we have to find a uniting factor to bring us together so we can be unified in our goals. Now, very little mention of God, but it's unified in our goals to make our society a better place. Sounds like Karl Marx, doesn't it? Well, it is, okay? It's, It's Satan. We need to unify to make the world a better place because God obviously can't do it. And so that's what we have here. The whole world united under this false religion. And it becomes very popular. Now, this false religion is given in an analogy as a harlot or woman, okay? A prostitute. And that's what's basically being described here. And the angel uses this word whore or harlot, a prostitute, Because if we take the definition of that, it's one who sells sells themselves for personal gain. And that's exactly what this religion does. It causes people to sell themselves to Satan so that they can gain something for it. Now, it can look different in different perspectives. You can call it different things, but the foundation of it is the same. I'm giving myself up. I'm submitting myself to the devil so I can gain something from it. See, the only true religion is Christianity to be a follower of Christ. And I'm not using that word Christianity in a broad sense, you know, where we see uh, Catholics as Christians and Mormons as Christians and the Jehovah's Witnesses as Christians. Okay, this is the Bible's definition. Those who truly have submitted themselves to Lord Jesus as king of their life. That is Christianity. And those who live to glorify him in their life. All others are false religion. And here he calls that a whore, a a harlot, okay? It's a prostitute because people have sold themselves for personal gain, but they've given up everything in the process. In the context of marriage, a harlot is a woman who seeks personal gain or pleasure outside of a proper marriage relationship. So in the context of a religious system, think of it as a religion that has personal pleasure or gain as its goal and is willing to sell oneself out in order to achieve that. And that is the foundation of every false religion. Now, Jesus asks us to offer ourselves as a sacrifice. But how much personal gain does he offer? He doesn't. He offers us eternal life, but the motivation is not so we can gain. The motivation is so that God will be glorified because we don't matter. God does. So real Christianity has God as its goal without regard to itself. 
Anything else is a false religion. So it's this false religion sells oneself out basically as a harlot. And it sits on many waters. It affects the whole world. The fact that she sits upon many waters indicates how persuasive this religion is. And we read in verse 15, it represents all the nations, tongues, people of the world. In Jeremiah chapter 51, verses 12 and 13, Jeremiah says this, and is referring to this very thing. Set up the standard upon the walls of Babylon. There's that city. Make the watch strong. Set up the watchmen. Prepare the ambushes. For the Lord hath both devised and done that which he spake against the inhabitants of Babylon. O thou that dwellest upon many waters, referring to this religious system of Babylon, abundant in treasures, Thine end is come in the measure of thy covetousness. So Jeremiah prophesied exactly what we're reading here in Revelation chapter 17. And it's called the city that sits upon many waters. Not because it's on the Euphrates River, but because it has so much influence over so many people. Okay? So the false religion will control the people of the world. It will be supported by them and their governments, which we'll see in verse 2. And those will be what God describes as those who dwell on the earth. They are attached to the earth. And they are attached to this false religion of the world. Verse 2, it goes on, it says, With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. The kings of the earth obviously are world rulers, and it says they've committed fornication. The word here, fornication, is pornuo in Greek. It's the word we get our word pornography from. But in Greek, what it means is any kind of perversion of sexuality outside of God's plan for it. Any kind of unfaithfulness. So it obviously gives us the connotation of immorality, any kind of immorality or unfaithfulness, but it's not just in the context of physical intimacy. Here it's in the context of religion. That physical intimacy, that spiritual intimacy, which God wants to have with us, the communion that he wants to have, only comes on his terms. And so by seeking our own terms, we've prostituted the communion we have with God. We've taken that communion we should have had with God and literally given it to Satan. And here he says the kings of the earth have done that. Why? because it brings them personal gain. They benefit from it somehow. And we don't know exactly what benefit they gain out of it. Maybe they use religion, especially at the end times, to influence people, to gain their, uh, their acceptance, to keep them in power. I mean, we see that happening even today in our own country. There's corrupt politicians who will do whatever it takes, give people whatever they want in order to stay in power. And that's what happens with the rulers of the earth. But it says they have been made drunk or they're, they're, they've committed fornication with this false religion. And then it says the inhabitants of the earth, there's those, those that dwell on the earth, all the normal people, all the regular people outside of world rulers. It says they've been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, made drunk, in Scripture, drunkenness has this connotation of addiction, okay? And made drunk doesn't just mean it happened once. It means it's an addiction. It happens over and over. It's a continuous attraction for this. And of course, God describes this false religion as a drunkenness. People are controlled by it. Why? Because it gives them a sense of acceptance. It gives them a sense of fulfillment religiously without any accountability to God. And so anything that will fill that void, they become drunk with, controlled by it. Paul uses this analogy when he talks about being controlled by the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. He says, be not drunk with wine. Don't be controlled by some other substance, but be filled with the Spirit of God, controlled by God's Spirit. So the picture that God gives us of these people in the end times is that they're literally drunk or controlled with this addiction to false religion because it fulfills something for them that they don't think God can. And so here the people of the earth are addicted to idolatry, to sin that draws them away from the truth and toward their own satisfaction and pleasure. 
They're high on this addiction to pleasing self. And the crumbs that are given them from the world rulers through this false religion, they think is self-satisfaction. C.S. Lewis made this comment about people in general. He said, we are far too easily satisfied. And he compared it to us being like little children playing in the mud puddles. And we think that's great when what is promised to us is a vacation at sea and we have no idea what we're missing because we're so addicted to that mud puddle we're in. And I think it's a great picture of what we see here in, in the end times. William Dillon said the drunkenness here refers to the loss of reason and self-control regarding Babylonianism, that's what he calls it, as opposed to Jesus Christ, plus the physical immorality that follows. We see all out, the all-out control that religions have over people. We read about this in Revelation chapter 14. In verse 8, it says there followed another angel. Remember, there were two angels that flew over and announced, and here's one of the announcements. There followed another angel saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And so the whole world is corrupted, is drawn into this, and addicted literally to this false religion of self, but really they've sold themselves out and they will lose everything. Literally, everything, spiritually and physically. Now, let me make one statement here, because this is true. Almost every false religion of the world throughout history has some kind of immorality attached to it. Now, it may not be mandated. There are a lot of false religions that have uh, immoral sexuality as part of the practice. That was very prevalent in Bible times. We don't see that as much because it's kind of got a stigma, but... You think about all the false religions of the world, and all of a sudden, the leaders are being exposed with all of these sexual crimes that have been committed behind the scenes. See, there's always immorality attached to false religion, and it's looked over, it's justified. See, God is the only one that condemns that. So spiritual immorality breeds physical immorality, and in fact, anybody who's caught in this web of physical immorality, which results from a wrong process of thinking in the first place, they have serious flaws in their religion and in their relationship with God. And I'm not talking just about people who are in apostate churches. I'm talking about believers as well, because if we just accept immorality as, oh, well, it happened, it's part of life, I can't help myself, whatever excuse we come up with, we have serious problems in our relationship with God. Because we haven't submitted to his truth, we've reasoned a way to justify our actions. And so you see how immorality of any kind basically is an insult thrown in the face of God. And there's no way we can have the right relationship with God with immorality in our lives, any kind of immorality. But here it becomes a dominant factor, a dominant part of this false religion. So there's immorality involved. That's the second point here. And it deceptively controls people. That's this drunkenness. False religion deceptively controls people. They think they've got it under control. It really is controlling them, just like drunkenness or immorality. We get down to verse 3, and here's our third aspect of false religion. It appears as virtuous. False religion always wants to put on a good front and appear as virtuous. Okay, look at what the angel says. The angel carries John into the wilderness to get a better look at this harlot. So far, John hasn't seen it. He's just been told about it by the angel. So in verse 3, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw the woman sitting upon scarlet-colored beasts, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The wilderness is a deserted, desolate wasteland. That's the definition. That's the kind of place that John was taken. And it actually describes very clearly the area where Babylon exists today and has existed for all of its history. Now, at the beginning, it was a very lush, fertile area. We called it the Fertile Crescent. But over the years, I believe sin, because of the sin, God has judged the area and taken away that productivity. And now it's a desert. And so the angel carries him into a desolate place, a desert, wilderness, he says. 
And that, that's characteristic of false religion, by the way. It's desolate. It's a desert. It's a wilderness. People think they're going someplace special. Where they end up is a desert. In Jude, Jude talks about false teachers who are the core of false religion, and he describes them as clouds without water. They look good. They look like they're refreshing, and they f- go overhead and give us nothing. Emptiness. Okay? But while there will be a facade of opulence and nobleness about false religion, it is always rooted in sin and destructiveness. That's the end result. You can't come to any other conclusion. Think about false religion as these pyramid schemes that you've read about, and hopefully none of you have been caught in, Okay, where people promise if you give us this much money, you'll get so much more back in return because our investments are so unique and so profitable, you can't help but win here. And so they swindle people into giving them large amounts of money, and then they keep most of the money themselves. They dish out a little bit as interest or as profit to the people who put in large amounts to make them think they're getting something out of it. And in the end, everybody loses everything, except the guy who's collected all the money in the first place. And if they're caught, they lose it anyway and go to jail. Okay, but that's what false religion does. It presents this promise of opulence, of profit, of success, but behind it is nothing but emptiness and destruction. And that's how the angel describes it. He takes them into a desert wasteland. And they keep reading, verse 3, it says, And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. We're going to get to verse 4 in just a minute. But look at John's description, a scarlet-colored beast beast. Where have we heard of a red beast before? Well, if you go back a couple chapters, in chapter 12, we read about the vision of the woman. Remember the woman? That was Israel. And then the second vision was the red dragon. Who was that? Satan. So Satan is at the core of this. And here he describes him. It's a red beast. And look at the description, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, we've heard that description before, seven heads and ten horns. If you go back to chapter 15, I'm sorry, but chapter 13, in verse 1, John says, I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And upon his horns, ten crowns, and upon his heads, the name of blasphemy. What do we read about in chapter 13? There's two beasts described for us there the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And so the Antichrist becomes not necessarily the face of, but the foundation of. And the relationship here is this woman who represents the false religion of the world is sitting on this red beast. In other words, we have a picture, and we can look at it as, wow, well, this false religion, this woman, this harlot, is sitting on and controlling the beast, possibly, But ultimately, the beast controls the woman. And when you get to the halfway point of the tribulation, you understand that. Because the beast destroys the entire system of false religion so that all people will worship him. But John says we have this scarlet beast. Scarlet is red. It's the color of blood. It's also associated with sin throughout Scripture. And if you keep reading the verse 6, which we'll get to, we know that false religion is drunk with the blood of martyrs, okay? But red is also the color of royalty. And if you get to chapter verse 4, it says, a woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color. That's the colors of royalty, success, leadership. And decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, that's opulence, richness, success. You can be like us. You can have everything that you want. And it says, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. A golden cup. Now, how many of you have a, literally a cup, solid gold, that you drink out of every morning? You put your coffee in it. Okay, yeah, none of us would do that. If we had a cup of gold, it would be locked away in a safe probably somewhere. But here, it's like, oh, we have a cup of gold. Yeah, we use this every day. We're so rich. We're so successful that this is really nothing compared to the wealth that we have gathered. And that's true. False religion is probably the wealthiest institution on the face of the earth. 
And when you put all of that together, think about what is going to be available for the Antichrist to use to sway people. But it's this picture of opulence, of success, of wealth, of goodness, of royalty, really. You know, again, taking the place of the king of King Jesus. But it's all a front. In Proverbs chapters 5 and chapter 7, Solomon warns all of us about immorality, warns us about the strange woman. I just want to read how he describes the strange woman. It's a prostitute, basically. And this is the prostitute speaking in verse seven, chapter 7 of Proverbs. It says, Therefore, I came to meet thee diligently to seek thy face and have found thee. She's speaking to the young man, the simple one, as Solomon says. And she says, I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, carved works, fine linens of Egypt. See, there's that richness, that opulence. I have perfumed my bed with myrrhs, aloes, and cinnamon, spices of the rich. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with love. Why? Because the goodman is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. See, there's the lie. Where's God? If God really cared about people, would he allow all this evil in the world? So God must not be here. Let's have our own religion. And false religion draws people in because of the presentation that it gives. In Proverbs chapter 5, Solomon says, For the lips are strange of a strange woman drop as honeycomb. Her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. See, it's that temptation of success. All that we want as human beings... And false religion uses that. The gold cup is, an, is a reference to prophecy from Jeremiah, actually, because it says, in her hand is a gold cup, but it's full of abominations and filthiness. Do you get good substance? No. You get abomination. Jeremiah 51.7, the prophet said, Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken of her wine, therefore the nations are mad. They've lost control because they're addicted to this false religion. So false religion always puts on a good show to outwardly appeal to the crowds. That's why it's so popular. Why are churches like ours so small? No, because people don't like the small buildings. People don't like the long sermons. People, you know, they want it to be more entertainment. Yeah, it's true. It's true, okay? That's why. But every false religion will promise you something in this life, something material for this body. You'll get some gain. Even what we call the prosperity gospel. Name it, claim it. Okay, that's a very popular phrase in those, those religions. Name it and claim it. Look, God has told you he will bless you, so all you need to do is name that thing that you want, and it will appear. I read a book years ago, uh, written by a man named Napoleon Hill. I think it was written back in the 30s, but it's called Think and Be Rich. And that was the basic philosophy of that book. If you want to be successful, if you want to have things, you have to think like a rich person. You have to think and act like you're already there, and eventually it will come to you. That's false religion. It's not economics. That's false religion. But that's what is given here as the temptation. Go to verse 5, the fourth thing. False religions all have the same roots. Verse 5 says, And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. Now, back in Bible times, harlots or prostitutes would actually wear a name band right around their forehead. And it wasn't necessarily their real name. It was a name that would appeal to people. That's how people knew they were prostitutes. One of the ways. And here, there's a band upon the forehead of this religion, and it's called Mystery, Babylon the Great. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I'll come back to this next week. But here we know that this religion is not Roman Catholicism. Okay, That's my conclusion, because God names it Babylon the Great. And we can analogize that or allegorize that and say, well, Babylon was a system. It's represented. It doesn't specifically say it's the Catholic religion. But there are a lot of commentators and a lot of people, especially from the first part of the 1900s and even into the late 1900s, that believe 
this false religion was the Catholics. Okay, I believe the Catholics are going to be part of it, but I don't believe they are the heart of it because God says here, this mystery is Babylon the Great, not the city. He says the mystery that we can't understand, this religious system, comes from Babylon. And I already talked to you about how it started with Nimrod. But it says it's the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. It is the system which spawns all other versions of false religion. And it started way back in Genesis. So every other false religion has been spawned out of this one religious system. And so it's called the mother of all the other harlots, other, other false religions. So we can take this mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots, and go back 4,000 years before Catholicism ever appeared. I will say this, and I'm not going to be liked by Catholics, but Catholicism sprung out of this. It's the false religion that infiltrated the true church that bred the Catholic religion. Okay, But the widespread idolatry of the world has its roots in this religion of Babylon, or Babel, if you want to go back that far. And so it's not an end times phenomenon, and it's not a New Testament or Old Testament religion. This is the false religion of all history. It is Satan's core uh, attempt to sway people from the truth of God. Verse 6, I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Remember, this is John talking. And it says, I saw the woman drunken with the blood of saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ. Here's the fifth aspect of false religion is that it always persecutes true Christians. They're always attacking. If you find somebody, and it doesn't matter whether they're out in some other church or in this church, if all they have to say is bad about not just the church, but about the people of God and about the worship of God, and because it's not going their way, and it's not what they want, and they're not getting out of it what they want, that's the religion of Babylon. There is false religion that exists in our churches today, in good churches. And in fact, one commentator said after the rapture, there are several, probably many churches that are just going to meet and continue meeting just like nothing ever happened. Because the people there are not true Christians. They've created a religion on their own terms. They call it Christianity. They read the Bible. They pray to some God, it's not the God of Scripture, but they act in a way that they think is Christian, but when it comes down to it, it's all about me. And unfortunately, we have people in good churches that go there their whole lives, and I think after the rapture happens, they're going to keep going back. And so when we talk about false religion, we're not talking just about the way far-off cults, the people who sacrifice to idols and all the rest of it. We're talking about people who have not made God their object in life and their goal in life. And it happens even within good churches like this. They're drunken with the blood of saints because they're addicted to silencing the real truth of God. That's Satan's goal. Go back through history. Who has persecuted the saints and killed the saints more than anybody? The Romans. From which came the Roman Catholic Church. During the Inquisition, more than 300 people were sacrificed in the name of heresy by the Catholics because they didn't conform to the religion of Catholicism. Now, where in the Bible does God tell us that if people don't agree with us in religion, we're supposed to kill them? I think what Jesus said was, love one another. See, that's the difference. The hallmark of true religion, true Christianity, is that we love one another, even people who disagree with us. And we want them to be saved. We reach out to them with the truth, but we don't slaughter people who don't agree with our religion. But that's the character of false religion. They attack, they slaughter people who don't agree with them. And even religions that have been called Christian or God's people. Think about the Jews. Remember Paul? In the name of the Jewish religion of the one true God killed Christians. 
until God knocked him off his horse and knocked some sense into him so he could see what true religion really was. So John says it's characterized by attacks on true believers, and we know that the slaughter in the end times is going to be immense. More people will die at the hand of the government and false religion in the end times than probably throughout all of history up to that point in the name of religion. But John finishes verse 6. He says, I wondered, I saw her and I wondered with great admiration. Why? Because this is the Apostle John. He saw the beginning of the church. He saw what it was meant to be. He's the last of the apostles alive. He's seen the growth of good churches. He's been given the warnings to churches who have already fallen into false religion. Remember chapter 2 and 3 in Revelation. And now he's looking at this church, and he's going, I don't even recognize it. That's not the church. What happened? Satan happened. False religion happened. And here's the dangerous thing. It could happen to us if we don't stay faithful to the Lord. If we make our religion about personal gain and what I want out of it and what is going to satisfy me and my preferences, then we have fallen into the lie of Satan that he's been using for all of history. When we come here to worship God, it's not to get something out of it. I've said that before. And here you understand why. Because it's not about me. It's about giving God the glory. And part of giving God the glory is encouraging each other. We're here to serve one another. That's how God wants us to serve him. We serve one another. Jesus said, if you do this to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And so we're not here to get something out of religion or get something out of church. We're here to serve God and to serve one another. And if you have any other motivation, then you are trapped in this false religion that will dominate the world. Because at the end of time, after Christ comes, nobody who is truly worshiping God in spirit and in truth will be left on the earth. Christ will take them home. But unfortunately, there will be many people still sitting in pews of churches like this that thought they had the right religion, but they were doing it for themselves. And that's the truth about the church today as a whole. There are very few, Jesus said. The path is narrow. Few there be that find it. There's many people who think they're walking the path, but they're just hanging on to get the blessings and the benefits. They don't want to submit to God. Now, this false religion of the end times is already abounding in the world today. It doesn't have to have idols and statues that you bow down to. It doesn't have to look like heathen worship at pagan temples with human sacrifices and all of those atrocities. Okay, It's defined, false religion is defined by nothing more than I am going to have a religion on my own terms. I will interpret the Bible the way I want. I will pray and worship God the way I want. I will get out of it what I want. That is the core of false religion. It goes all the way back to Satan's fall from heaven. Every single one of us is in danger of falling into the false religion of Satan if we're not committed to following God alone and fully, and that becomes the purpose of our lives. If you're here to gain something, you've already been trapped. But it's not too late. God offers a solution to that through Jesus Christ. Selfishness, unforgiveness, those are step one of false religion, and eventually that will lead you to hate others, to strike out them verbally, and maybe strike out at them physically, because that's the process in false religion. Because you can't handle people who live according to the truth that make you feel guilty about what you are. And Christ said that's the way it was going to be. Satan wants your religion to glorify and benefit yourself. That is what we see at the end times, and that's what we see all around us now. And if that's where you are spiritually when the Lord comes back, you may still be in the habit of going to church, but you're not part of the church because they'll be gone. Satan's been deceiving people for thousands of years with this lie. So here's my warning to you. Don't get caught in that lie. Religion is not about you. Worship is not about what you want. It's not about what you prefer. It's not about what you get out of it. 
It is giving to God what he deserves and what he wants from us. Anything else is a false religion. So you want to avoid the lie, know the truth of God, live in the truth of God, and glorify him as you live as the Lord of your life. So that's why we keep coming back to this question as we go through Revelation. Is Jesus truly your king? Have you submitted yourself to him? Otherwise, if he comes back and he's not your king now, you'll be kneeling unwillingly before him someday. We're going to stop there. We'll pick up the end of this, and we'll see what God does with this false religion next week. Let's pray. Father, again, we just praise you and thank you because you've taught us in your word the things that are important for us to know and understand about the world that we live in. And Lord, religion is a tricky thing because there are many people who have been deceived into thinking they have true religion because they use God's name, they pray to God, they go to church, they even help each other, and yet their motivation is completely wrong. They have taken hold of the lie of Satan. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the truth about ourselves. Help us not to look at other people, to condemn them, because then we've been caught in the trap as well, but help us to evaluate ourselves. Are we truly following Jesus Christ? We pray that that would become the goal of this church as a whole, but of each one of us here that have heard your word today. So, Lord, convict us, work in us, accomplish your work in us, and draw us to you so that we might be honoring you in everything that we do, in every area of our lives, not just as we come into these walls. Lord, thank you again for your truth. May it accomplish the work that you've set it forth to do. And we look forward to the day when you bring us home where we will have clear understanding about all these things as we see you in front of us in person. But keep us faithful until that day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with this question.